Welcome to Season 2 of Voices from the Land, a special podcast series produced by the Legacy Hope Foundation. In this podcast series, we'll hear about Indigenous language revitalization projects and efforts to preserve and promote Indigenous languages across Turtle Island. Join us as we learn more about how Indigenous languages are helping Indigenous peoples connect, know, and remember the voices from the land. Hello and welcome to this podcast on Indigenous languages. Voices from the Land is an Indigenous language podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Its goal is to capture more perspectives and voices on Indigenous land revitalization. We are seeking to capture a range of perspectives to better reflect the many people engaged in Indigenous language revitalization. Our aim is that by listening to teachers, adult learners, and parents or guardians of children in language classes, or whose children have taken language classes, we can gain more insight into what are the challenges and barriers, as well as the solutions and positives that are out there. In turn, we hope this will form a larger discussion on how to support Indigenous language revitalization. In this episode, our guest is James Darren Corbier, a former Indigenous language teacher from the Wikwimikong First Nation on Manitoulin Island in Ontario. Hello and welcome to this language podcast. James, glad you can join us today. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. How are you? We're all good. We're good. Um, maybe we can start by you telling us a bit about your background, your First Nation. I know you come from uh, Wikwimikong, one man on Tulan Island. Tell us about your family and your history and uh, and a bit about your community. Well, let's see. We Kwem Kong, we Kwem Kong, uh, they, we, we, we say that we're the, the, the home of the Three Fires Confederacy because you've got three different groups represented there. You've got the uh, Ojibwe, the Odawa, and the, and the Bode Otomi. It's a large community. So we have, and, and because of that, you know, combination of different groups, you have different, uh, different ways of saying the same word or the same thing in Nishnabemwin. A little little nuance or a little dialectal differences, but they're all beautiful. They're all good. We we try to preserve them, you know, rather than saying that's one of the things that I've run into sometimes with other language teachers is that is that they'll say that's not how you say it. That's not how you say it. it but it it is. It's just if, if you were Odawa, that's how you would say it, or if you were Odawa from another part of Ontario, you would say it a little differently, right? So so there's no wrong way to say it. It's just. There, the, it's just different. So, anyway, um, lots of people in my community. Uh, um, I was raised by my grandparents. My uh, grandparents didn't speak to me in English or uh, Nishnabemun. They only spoke to me in English because, because their experience was that they would be punished for speaking their language, and so that that's what they expected me to experience. I guess in school that I would be punished for speaking Nishnabemun. And so it wasn't always spoken directly to me, but I overheard them, and 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 it was kind of like all around uh, me growing up. I myself am not a, a, a fluent speaker. I I maybe possess ten percent of of uh, the 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 total knowledge of all the words in the Shnabimun. Uh But what I do understand, though, is the the connections that are made between the words. Uh, is I don't I don't know how to explain that, but. A word when you translate it to English, it, it just isn't that English word. It's it's just not that object. It, it, it's, there's a whole bunch of feelings and and ideas and thoughts and, and processes associated with that with that with that word. So uh, they're they're much 
tougher to translate into English in any event. Um, so we have a, a, a diverse uh, culture, uh, diverse language uh, input. And I think because of the location geographically, we were isolated at the far end at the east end of Manitoulin Island. I think because of and maybe some early early resistance or uh, resilience to colonization, um, the language is still pretty pretty good in 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 my community. I'm probably one of the first generations who haven't been fully immersed in the language, and there's one generation like my children. Maybe uh, if I had grandchildren, they would be taking classes now in school in wiki I, I the last time i was there was probably about 15 years ago and uh um we're in in a, in a working capacity i mean um they had introduced a, a, a k-4 uh indigenous or anishinaabe immersion program and right. so for the first four years of school all you would have is anishinaabe when and then after that you would slowly integrate into english right yeah yeah yeah, yeah so that's Okay, we'll uh, we'll talk a little bit more of that. Yeah, uh, that would be uh, immersion, right? And uh, so we'll get into that a little bit later. Right now, what I want to ask you is a bit, bit about your background as a, as a language teacher. How did you get into that, and uh, did you have to take a, a course or something? And and how did you prepare to become a an indigenous language teacher? How was that? How did that process go for you? It probably went around the the completely wrong way i, I imagine but <laughs> uh i i am not um this this is where colonialism funny colonialism kicks in i am not a certified linguist or i and, and neither do i have uh, training in teaching language uh, i i didn't go to university in english i don't have an english degree i don't have a a degree in uh an indigenous language or anything like that I think what happens is that fluent speakers will uh, get a university degree and then they will uh, get the certification that they can teach the language. And that's how they get into teaching in places like uh, high schools, uh, colleges and universities, right? That'll give them access to universities. I don't have such a certification. I have a, a degree in biology and a degree in education and neither one of them are, are suitable for teaching a language necessarily. But because of the fact that I grew up in the language and I've heard the language and I, I know uh, a lot of what the, the, the meanings are and I, I know all the nuance in, in, in speaking the language, I was trained as a science teacher, but um, they were looking for someone who could teach the language. And, and it was just my, my life, it seems, uh, my, my adult life anyway, <laughs> seems to be this uh, series of uh, uh, fortunate uh, accidents or serendipity. I, I think I've mentioned previously that I was a, a, a night stalker at the Walmart on the American side in Sault Ste. Marie. And uh, uh, I, I came across into Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and I put my application in with the school board. They didn't have any room for science teachers, but they were looking for an Indigenous language teacher. And so they interviewed me over the phone. And then uh, after the interview, they invited they invited me to start the following Monday. Like they called me up on a Friday for an interview, and then the following Monday I was working, right, as an indigenous language teacher, and and that just kind of blew my mind because I I'm a science guy, and and so um, I I was in university, and I, while uh, getting my degree in biology, one of the electives that I chose was was to choose Nishnabemwin, and it just so happens that the it was uh, at 
um, Laurentian University in Sudbury, uh, University of Sudbury, I believe it, it's called, and um, uh, Marianne Nokwijik, Marianne Corbier, Professor, Professor Dr. Marianne Corbier. She was married, or she is married to my my uncle, and um, she was the language professor there. And so I I used some of her, and she taught an introductory, um, an intermediate, and an advanced um, uh, language course at the university level. And and what I did was um, I I remembered a lot of a lot of the teaching methods or her curriculum. And so what I did was I I, I, ad, I adapted it to uh, teach the teach the students in my class. And then basically that's what that's what you have now. If you were to go online on YouTube and and look up Let's Start Ojibwe, you'll see my videos there from ten years ago, uh, going through just some basic basic Nishnabe language principles using using a colonial approach breaking it down according to grammar sounds phonetics things like that um but i'm not i'm not trained as a linguist i am not trained in 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 teaching language my specialty is science i'm a science guy um but again it's just you know creator had a different plan and decided that she was going to make me a language teacher so i'm I'm good with that i'm okay with that Yeah. yeah Peter said, "He's not suited to be a science teacher. He's going to be That's right. a language yeah, teacher." Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how you know. It's funny how things turn out. You know, fate just takes you in a different direction sometimes, yeah, unexpectedly, yeah. and or you end yeah. up, you know, in a situation where you had, you know, you had not even planned or thought to be in. So it's funny how the the the, the creator does does things yeah. like that to yeah. our lives. Yeah. yeah. So you had to. Uh, land on your feet pretty quick when you got this job uh, teaching at the university indigenous language and you you got some help uh, over the weekend I guess uh, before you started on Monday so what was it like what was the format of you went in it was just a classroom uh, full of students wanting to learn Ojibwe talk a little bit about that how you started how you set up the whole thing in terms of the classroom what was the environment like and, and, and how did that go the uh, my first teaching gig teaching Nishnabemun was at a high school in Blind River, and uh, it was probably mid November, sometime around there that 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 I came in. The story that they told me was that they had a counselor, an Indigenous student counselor. Uh, they they a lot of school boards have services specific to Indigenous students now, and and at the time they had one counselor who was working specifically for. Uh, with indigenous kids uh, from Blind River, so Mississauga, uh, some of the First Nations communities around there. I think I think they went all the way up to like Cutler, places like that. And, uh, anyway, all sorts of indigenous kids at this at this high school in Blind River, and uh, they didn't have a language program, and so uh, they had the counselor teaching the language from a textbook, and she wasn't trained as a teacher. She wasn't she wasn't you know, but under the Education Act. In certain circumstances, you can take someone who knows who knows something, and you can put them in charge and make them a teacher, right? Uh, but she wasn't trained as a teacher; she didn't have the classroom management skills. Nothing against her; I don't mean any disrespect, and please don't take that as being disrespectful. She just wasn't prepared for the the work that was required to to, to teach a class and manage a class. Um, right. uh, so she ended up quitting, and uh, they were looking for a language teacher. And and like I said, at about the same time, that's when I put in my application to to that board as a science teacher, and they picked up on you know me uh, coming from Wiki, being a police officer, uh, speaking to Schnabem when uh, you know 
university courses that I've taken in Nishnabimun. And so that's that's what they brought me in for. And I had no prep whatsoever. Whatever was left behind in, in the classroom at the time was was what I had to start with. So there were like a couple of old um, books by I think Basil Johnson. Uh, uh, you want to go? You want to go way back? Like Basil Johnson is uh, like like sixties and seventies. Uh, he's a sixties seventies writer, like very famous Indigenous writer, like a, a amazing a, amazing work. So I had a couple of his old dictionaries. Um, and then, uh, you know, just the board was good. They had uh, other um, resources available. They had, uh, they had one person specifically uh, in charge of the uh, Indigenous portfolio, I suppose, or if you want to call it that, Carol Trudeau. And, and she was always trying to find resources to try and help out. And so I, I went back to my old uh, university notes and, and found a couple of the, the, the texts that I used for Marianne Corbier's class from Laurentian. And uh, like I said, I, I adapted those to work with these kids. And from there, it took me probably about, I don't know, five years, five, six years at least to, to put everything together. And even still, I don't, I don't think I have the, a, a definitive resource that I, could, that I could go to. There are so many out there. There are so many out there that are available. It's just, it would be nice to have like a compendium, right? right one, yeah. one thing where, where people can go to and say, oh, okay, I've got this, or I need this, or I can use this, or right? And uh, just contained in one, one document, that would be ideal. Because then yeah. it would be serve as a dictionary and it would help to preserve our language as well, right? In its various forms. So It's kind of what we're trying to uh, put together is a resource archive for teachers. You, uh, you taught at a high school. You remember the first time uh, you walked into class? I remember the layout when I walked into the classroom. Uh, there was a desk at the front of the class and a whole series of desks arranged in a square, just a big square. So everybody sat along, sat against the wall along the outside of the, of the classroom. I was required to teach three different, three different things in order to be a full-time teacher. So I had Native Studies and... I think it was indigenous beliefs or something like that that I was teaching. The other two classes were smaller, but the language class, I think my first, my first year, I had like 26 kids uh, ranging in age. It was an introductory class. So they were ranging in age from, from the grade nine to, I think to mixed in grade, grade 11, might've had a grade 12 in there as well. Um, as, as with any class, the teacher, I think is the most important part. <laughs> If, if the if the teacher comes in and, and shows enthusiasm and and is is happy about what they're doing then that's going to rub off and the kids are going to pick up on it and they're going to be happy to be there too right and so I was scared and nervous I certainly hadn't I didn't expect to be teaching Nishnabimwin, let alone you know uh, two days after after a, a job interview so I was totally unprepared I was totally unprepared uh, um in those situations, you just try to make the, the the room comfortable, and so you get to know each other. And 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 I use some of my own cultural background. Okay, what clan are you from? Like most of the probably the first week or so was just in English. Everything was in English. What clan are you from? Uh, do, do you know the word for clan? Do you know how to introduce yourself with your clan name? Right, and and just so it's just more more information gathering, you know. And and then and then once I established, you know, where everybody was at or a baseline. Then I could have an idea as to as to what needs to be taught, and it, it was good because most of the kids, most of the kids, if if uh, I, maybe 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 none of them had any 
any elders back home that they can go to, no no aunties or uncles or grandparents that they could go to, to to ask for help, right? Hey, what does this word mean? Oh, I don't know. I don't speak that language or I don't remember those those words or that language. So that was one of the cool things about, about teaching the language is that you would introduce concepts or words and they would go home and, and I would encourage them to do that, right? Here's your homework. Go talk to your go talk to your auntie or go talk to your uncle and ask them what this word means. I, I didn't teach them anything bad <laughs> or what would be considered bad in, in yeah. you know, translated to English, but the, uh, or, or I'd invite them to find out if there were words that their parents or grandparents knew or relatives knew, and then, you know, try to jot them down, bring them back. We went through some basics. Uh, I, I think for Nishnabimwin, the, the Fiero sound chart is the, is the familiar sound chart that, that, all it seems like the indigenous language or Anishinaabe language teachers use. What is uh, it? It's the Fiero sound chart. F I E R O sound. It's a, either a sound system or a sound chart. I call it a sound chart. Sure, sure. And 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 it it's not an alphabet. It, uh, people confuse it with an alphabet. We did we didn't we didn't have time to develop our own alphabet. Um, uh, we had a writing system that was very early in the stage. You see them on the rocks when you go around Killarney or you know places like that. The 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 carvings on the on the rocks uh, or Peterborough, the painted rocks down there. We had yeah. our early forms of writing, but just not not like English is now. But anyway, the Fiero sound chart uh, mimics the sounds, all the sounds you'll hear in Nishnabemun in the Nishnabe language and uh it doesn't include the letters that you won't hear so so uh for example the you won't hear the letter f in the Anishinaabe language you won't hear the letter l either there there are certain consonant sounds that you won't hear that, that don't exist in, in in that language in our language so yeah. arrow uh is is a simple way of breaking down all the different sounds it's almost like a it's almost like a like a a multiplication table because there's only seven vowel sounds so you when know. you take the consonant sound and you multiply it by the vowel sound consonant by the vowel consonant by the vowel consonant by the vowel that's what it will sound like it's a really good chart to use and it's uh it can be uh played to to music or there's a little tune that goes along with it and and most students seem to remember that little tune as as they go through reading the sound chart um yeah. so that's usually the first the first thing to set up and then and then from there you just you just build from there right you just build from there okay mm-hmm. and then i had to go back and learn grammar myself i had to learn i had to learn what an adjective was uh you know a verb noun first second third person what is that okay because because i hadn't used first you know that kind of thinking since high school right so i had to go back and i had to relearn all of all of these little uh, english terms and and then apply them to the Nishnabe language and and right you know, uh, found accompanying charts to go along with it. And then, so, so it, it was just a matter of, you know, cutting and pasting from other, you know, there, there's a lot of other great material out there from great minds, uh, beautiful instructors. Um, okay. We'll um, get to, uh, we'll get, uh, it'll be kind of a, keep that in okay. mind, uh, back in your mind. Uh, it'll be kind of the, the last question, uh, we're going to ask you, uh, you're, uh, you taught high school students, you said from grade nine to grade 11, maybe grade 12. So that'd be a, what, a 15 years old to 19, maybe 18, uh, in that yeah, age. 18 would be, would be the oldest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now when you, they were all in, they were all in your class. Uh, uh, did you, uh, did you feel that you had to, uh, change your style when you're talking to a, a 15 year old, as opposed to like an 18 year old, or was it all 
all the same to the whole no. class. No, they 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 were pretty much, you know, consistent in in their uh, learning level or the where they were at in terms of uh, their previous knowledge. So a lot of them, in in spite of their age, that might have been the first time that they've taken my class, right? right. So so normally, when, when I started working in Blind River, and uh, this is with the um, the Algoma District School Board, and uh, I was there for like like three months till the end of that semester, and then they moved me downtown to White Pines, and that's where I stayed for the rest of my teaching career. Was was at White Pines uh, teaching high school there. So grade seven and eight students who were coming up from the feeder schools were given an option. That the first year I started teaching there, were given an option: either you take French or because you had to take a second language, you take French or Ojibwe. And and of course, most of the indigenous kids are going to sign up for Ojibwe, right? And so that's basically how things how things progress. Okay. So most my, like my first year, probably all grade nines. Uh, the second year would have been nines and tens, and and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Did you find that obviously there must have been some kind of progression in terms of their ability to understand the language from year one, two, and three, and so on? Did you notice a difference in their learning? There were two levels. Two levels that I taught. There was a third level that was being created. Uh, so in in high school, you can take uh, an introductory language course, Ojibwe language course, introdu introductory. That's that's what I taught. Then there was an advanced uh, or an intermediate Ojibwe, LNO, and that was for like a grade 10 at a grade 10 level. So if you took the grade 9, you could advance to the grade 10. And then from the grade 10, uh, we were going to start up with a grade 11 because in order to run a course, and that's and that's sort of like one of the that's sort of like one of the the downfalls of the system. In order to run a run a program or teach a course in a high school, you have to have a minimum number of students in order to. And I think the number was eight. So let's say I start year one. By the time year four rolls around, I've got students who moved from grade nine to grade twelve. And if I taught every year, if I had eight students every year, I would have been able to teach them, uh, you know, a grade nine course, a grade ten course, grade eleven course, and then a grade twelve course. But we didn't have eight students every year. Uh, I think uh, in grade eleven, a grade eleven level course uh, was was being proposed because that was how long it took for us to get uh, that many students who were fluent enough to take uh, a course at that level. Right. Do you know what I mean? We we're trying to build capacity with the students. Yeah. We didn't have enough students. That once once you get your in Ontario, uh, as far as I know, once you get your 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 one extra language credit. You don't have to take anymore. You're not required to. But if you're going to take one, like I said, they offered French or Anishinaabem. And yeah. uh, um, after that, it wasn't required. Some came back and took a grade 10 course. And then those that finished the grade 10 course are fewer and fewer. I think we had seven. I had, why had why, seven why is that? Why is that that the numbers just keep dropping year after year? Well, scheduling. Uh, there's there's other core or compulsory credits that they have to achieve. Uh, so language is an elective. They the and they might choose other electives. Uh, let's say for year one, I start off with three classes of a hundred students, and five from each go on to uh, a grade ten class. So that means I'll have fifteen kids to teach in a grade ten class. Now, out of that. Out of those grade 10 classes, let's say only five want to go on to a grade 11 class. 
that's not enough, right? That doesn't make the threshold of whatever that number is, eight. And so I, I can't teach them. Even though there are five who are interested, I, I still can't do it because it, it, right. it's not going to be paid for by the board, right? So right. Um, that, be, that's what I mean, the decrease. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not the, it, it could be the lack of interest too, but in terms of numbers, just the numbers, it, 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 you know, in, a, in this pyramid kind of buildup, right. we don't have enough numbers for okay. to support the, that position. My next question has to do with barriers and obstacles to success of students learning uh, the Indigenous language. Uh, so the three areas I'm going to ask you are, what are the barriers to your students? And, and then the second, the thing will be about the school and in the community. So the first part of this three-point question is, uh, what are the biggest obstacles to success for your students? You touched a bit about on it, but there's, like you said, the the uh, not being able to continue to a higher level. I guess that'd be kind of a barrier or an obstacle. Uh, what are some other obstacles for your students that you found that was challenging for them in terms of them being able to continue to be successful and in advancing into learning of their indigenous language? Like, could there be like you know some places have uh, lack of community support? and uh no one to talk to outside the classroom not I, enough time you know for students what's their what were their obstacles for being successful in continuing to learn their language one of the things that i i, I guess i perceive as as an obstacle uh to student success is the the manner in which the curriculum is is evaluated it's about performance for them Right. It, it's not about, hey, I get to learn this language. No, no, I got to get a good mark. That's that's what motivates them or the lack of it. It's performance based. And, and un yeah. unless you're extremely competitive, then you're not going to want to put a lot of effort into it. Right. But but if it's something that's fun, uh, that that um, I wish I could assess and evaluate students anecdotally, you know, hey, they're putting in a good effort. You're, you're really learning a lot. That's that's good to see rather than doing the the you know, the standard, uh, uh, write the stuff down and then regurgitate it later. That, that's, that's not learning that, that only goes in one, one space and then comes out the other. And then, and then, and then they leave it on the paper. Right. And after that, they're gone. Um, I would rather find another, uh, more fun way of teaching the language so that it, it's something that's fun and, and, and enjoyable rather than performance-based or assessment-based. I see that as an obstacle to the students because they think they have to achieve a certain level right and and that's yeah. what, that puts unnecessary pressure on, on you also you also mentioned that students uh they learn something from your class or or, or an indigenous class language class and they hope they don't have anybody to go home to talk to about yeah. it yeah but, that's the other big issue yeah yeah as is yeah. when when they do go home they don't have they either don't have that support or if they do have that support, I don't know if uh, if it's if it's offered. Oh no, we don't we don't talk like I, I know some. Even when I was a teacher, in some homes, in some homes, they would they wouldn't speak Nishnabemun because it, right. it, it it well, it's just that old way of thinking that that is the devil's language or or there's something less about it, right? right. And 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 so they'd go home and say, hey, my uh, native language teacher today said this and oh we don't speak that around here we don't talk that way around here or or some students are even purposely withdrawn 
uh, non-native kids. Uh, in, in most cases, it was non-native kids, but there were a couple of indigenous kids uh, who were withdrawn from my class because they didn't want them uh, learning uh, a language that was going to die. <laughs> and they wanted them to learn French instead, right? Their, their so, parents? Yeah, parents, yeah. Really? Yeah, wow. yeah. yeah. It, it, it happens where, you know, if you have indigen an indigenous language and someone wants to take it, they might not be allowed because the parents will pull them out. So yeah. uh, that's 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 not often that the, that it happens. Uh, maybe, yeah. maybe once every couple of years, but... Uh, yeah. What about uh, teaching tools like... Uh, like now there's different apps, right? Uh, they have computers now and laptops yeah. and stuff like that. Yep. Did you have any kind of problem like that uh, with your students not having the proper tools to, to learn? I'm a very old-fashioned kind of teacher, I guess. Um, I, I believe I believe in old-fashioned things like handwriting uh, because it, it, it helps to connect the, the, the brain to, to the word because yeah. you're, you're, you're scripting it out. What I would do is at the beginning of the year, we would start creating a little dictionary and I would provide materials like construction paper, things like that. And, and we would create these little dictionaries as a, as a, as a, I didn't tell them it was their class project until like December. Oh, by the way, your class projects are due. And they'll go, oh, no, 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 what, 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 what class project? And I say, well, the dictionary you've been working on since September, right? And, and you know, so, so the work was done kind of, but uh, anyway. Those are the things that I prefer to use. I, I mean, the technology is there. There is some great technology. Don't don't get me wrong. It's just it it, it doesn't seem to, to to work well with the spirit of an indigenous language. If if that makes sense, it's just and your style. Of yeah, not my style. It doesn't it, it it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to to, to mesh well. Yeah. So, what would you say is a big challenge for the school? What are some challenges? Like I think you you talked about it. Uh, Curriculum and numbers, I guess, uh, number of students. Yeah, well, that's one of the one of the issues, I guess, or challenges is is the uh, you know the 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 numbers game, I guess. The and and you know they got to run it like a business, right? I mean, they have to have they have to have uh, numbers, I suppose. Not teachers, I, I guess. With finding the right teachers, that'd be like a challenge, right? Finding indigenous language teachers, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is 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 not an easy thing to do. I know that uh, uh, you know we. One of the things that we run into as Indigenous people is that is that everybody in the rest of society is here, right at this level, and we are here, and and everybody, no, no, oh no, we gotta fix, we gotta fix things. So they expect us to be here, but then there's this gap, right? There's this big gap right here. So our language speakers are elderly um one of the things that one of the ideas i had was was let, let's let's do this let's take a let's take a, a a new teacher whatever 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 a new language teacher and we'll pair them with an elder a language a language speaker and we'll get them to work together for maybe maybe two years and then at the end of that two years the language elder teacher will earn a degree and and the 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 teacher will earn a degree and you'll have two teachers in two years. Then this teacher will pair up with another young teacher and, and do the same thing. And then this teacher will pair up with another young teacher and do the same thing. And then after maybe 10 years, you'll have, theoretically, if, if it's a two-year, every two years, you double your, your teachers. What is that? Five times. So really, you'll have uh, 32 language teachers in, in 10 years, right? Yeah. Uh, based on that, based on that, if, if they would 
think about doing things that way rather than this colonial, you know, colonial system where, oh, you can only earn it at a university degree and only within this eight month span between September and April. And then, so I got to get over that way of thinking. Um, and, and, and if they're really genuinely interested in, in supporting indigenous languages, then you're going to make those accommodations, right? You're going to do what needs to be done in order to save a language. It, I, I sometimes, when, when I start with my students, I'll say, if, if you're trying to save a language, uh, um, uh, I, I would do, you would do anything to save a language, wouldn't you? And I said, so, so you, would, you would take the life buoy and you would throw it out into the water, right, to save a language, right? Uh, and and uh, you should be hanging on to this this life buoy because because this is the last little bit of language that you have left. So I, I would liken it that way to the students, and then that would make, you know make them think about it and sign on. So hopefully they they still remember some of the stuff I taught. I'm sure they will. Yeah, yeah. Some things uh, tend to you know stick with you over over the years. Uh, things you learn in school, whether you know. I think I could probably go back to most of my classes that I went to university and in high school and probably find something that kind of sticks in my brain that from, from those times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like right now, there's a lot of uh, communities across Canada, indigenous communities that are working on revitalizing their languages in their, in their communities. A lot of young people, you know, I'd say, it has like, yes, you know, majority of young people don't speak uh, their native language in Canada anymore. Uh, so there's big challenges in communities, right? And uh, from your community, uh, uh let's just look at that. What would be uh, some of the challenges that your community there would be facing in terms of trying to have a successful language program in your community? No, no, I'm, I'm. Don't quote me on this. I'm not. Uh, I, I haven't been. I haven't been in any sort of official capacity in Wiki for about 15 years now. Um, uh, but um, when I was there afterward, I, began, I was hearing good things. They do have a, a Wakwemakong heritage organization that uh, is dedicated to preserving the language and preserving and promoting. And they're and they're doing all sorts of uh, all sorts of good things with uh, um, resources. Um, that's the last I've heard. The immersion program was was uh, being introduced into the schools. The community has um, buildings and facilities and all sorts of all sorts of elders well uh, you know 15 years ago all sorts of elders who were very fluent in the language. i even my own aunties my own aunties are fluent in the language and they're and they're they're still around uh, you know what we need to do is get away from this concept or this idea that that someone has to be qualified to teach the language right because if wiki has a population my hometown has a population on reserve of well, I don't know, let's say 5,000 people. I don't know what the population is anymore, but let's say 5,000 people. There's probably, there's probably uh, a thousand who would, who would be fairly well versed in the language. And of that, maybe, maybe 500 who would be real, like, like expert. I, I mean, by my standards and, and, and could probably teach it easily, but because they don't have the qualifications you know the certifications; they don't have those those three letters after their names. That, yeah, that that meets uh, that meets the school standards, right? Like uh, yeah. Ontario Ontario standards, right? School standards. Yeah, yeah, but, exactly. And yeah. so, so, so if 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 you're if you're going to apply a, a little tiny filter like 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 this, you know, like a one inch wide filter, 
and 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 you have a, a you know, ten feet worth of resources. Well, you know, you're only going to see that much, right? And you're only going to access that much because it, it just doesn't make sense. You have lots of good speakers, lots of good speakers back in back in Wiki anyway. I don't see any um, except for maybe funding, maybe uh, money. I don't know for sure, okay. but uh, last time I checked, uh, Wiki was doing pretty good, and Wiki was kind of like one of the source, one of the source uh, communities for um, others, uh, other communities where they've lost their language to come to to learn about it. So right. uh, Northern Michigan would have people come to to Wiki to learn, or m m many of our, like I said, not my generation, but well, my generation as well, but my auntie's generation, a lot of them have gone on. And they've acquired those linguistic certifications so that they can teach what they speak every day and they can yeah. teach it right at the university or level and things like that. So a lot of uh, Anishinaabe language teachers are originally from my community. Yeah. Okay. I got like two questions left and it's about positives. Uh, what, what are good things that are happening? What's, what's making students successful in uh yeah, what are key factors in the school or the program or the community that are, that are what's happening that is making students succeed in learning their language, either in the in the school or program or in the community? What are some key factors that are, are making indigenous language students successful? Well, I, I think the, the 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 fact that it's being offered uh, is is a is a big thing. It's, it's only been fairly recent that indigenous languages have been offered at a, at a high school level. It's a you know relatively recent phenomenon if you if you want to put it that way. I think a lot of young people, a lot of kids, when they can make a connection between language and culture, that sort of invigorates them and makes them want to learn more about the language and about the culture. One of the cool things when when I was teaching is that is that these were res kids and, and I grew up on the res and I could relate. And, and I think that's why we got along so well, because I could relate to these little res issues that would, that would come up after, you know, part of, sometimes in the class, things would come up and, you know, res issues, res related issues. But um, if the teacher can make a good connection with the students, that's, that's, like I said, the most important factor, because then the students are enthusiastic about what, about the learning too. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you can find, someone who you know a good teacher a good teacher who loves the language or loves teaching then that's an ideal um situation but that's also another challenge right and like i said i just want to reiterate that it, it, yeah. it shouldn't be performance-based right, it, right. it shouldn't be how how good can you do you know it's it's more like wow you you're here all day what did you learn yeah. oh yeah, that you said on in wow hey that's awesome that's good right yeah. <laughs> the last part is podcast interview is about uh is there anything else like uh, any other resources you'd like you, you you're aware of that you'd like to share about improving indigenous language learning i think that if you have access to the internet the internet has a lot of good resources if you have uh people in your community who who still know how to talk in in their in the, the language whatever language it is you know, whatever, whatever old language, Cree, <laughs> Anishinaabem, uh, when, you know, maybe, maybe old Italian or something, doesn't matter your background, you want to connect to that, you want to connect to the language, right? Yeah. Um, 
you have fluent speakers around, yeah, spend time with them. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, James, for uh, taking the time to do this with us. Your comments and your contribution, you know, you, you, thank you very well, much. Thank you. Yeah, for thank, the time. thank you. Jimmy Wedge. Voices from the Land is a podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Music is provided by David Finkel. For more episodes like this and to learn more about the work we are doing, please visit www.legacyofhope.ca.